what the board was willing to do, you know, I pled my case, which is let's invest. We're healthy enough to invest and let's invest more than we're going to earn for the next couple of years. Let's create a bell curve. We showed them a five-year sketch of what that could look like because you've got to build and diversify revenue. The one thing that was missing, aside from capacity of staff, was technology. We were, like a lot of small budgets, using, I call it 1950s technology, but I suppose it was 2005 technology. Prior boards wouldn't have dreamed of spending more than $10,000 on a database, quote unquote. And here I'm looking at what, frankly, little or unclean data I have, and it's quite obvious by 2018 that members having one, two, three, four, count them, five sign-ons was costing us business. More importantly, what we learned over time, it was costing us the opportunity to develop that's what's in it for me, membership value. is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Cynthia Young, Executive Director at the American Art Therapy Association, or ADA. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I love your podcast, so it's super cool that I was asked. Well, thank you so much. So, hey, tell us about ADA. The American Art Therapy Association, over 50 years old, is the association that represents over... 4,500 or maybe 5,000 at any time, professional art therapists and students. And our job is to advance art therapy, which I bet you may not know what that is. I do not. Cynthia, tell us, what is art therapy? One of our biggest challenges is public awareness in making sure people know the difference between doing art for fun and art for wellness or art therapy. Art therapy is a professional research-based mental health profession. So you might go to an art therapist just as much as you might go to a traditional talk therapist. It is just simply a different opportunity for mental health care and wellness. Art therapists have a master's degree at minimum in art therapy from an accredited program before they get their supervision hours and go on to get their art therapy credentials, most of which then go get the board certification, maintain a license to practice. So art therapy is a full mental health field. We are big, big, big proponents of every human being doing art because art is good for your brain. It's good for your health. It's good for your blood pressure. Yes. And by the way, if you go to Americans for the Art website, you could see the data. It's good for your son and daughter's science and math SAT tests. Everybody should be doing art. But if you want the mental health component of art, Working with an art therapist in the room is absolutely the best and appropriate way to do that. 
Cynthia, who do art therapists work with and why do they choose art therapy? That is an amazing question because it's one of the fun facts about art therapy that not everybody knows. Simple answer, art therapists work with everyone. They work with children, they work with seniors, they work with people managing major medical challenges, they work in hospitals, they work in community centers, they work with the military and veterans, they work with communities who have been devastated by man-made or natural disaster, they work in museums, art therapists work with and for everyone. And the difference is that an art therapist has been trained to specifically use visual art materials to help that person in a session process their emotional health. We're a talk therapist, obviously, if you've been to talk therapy, I have, it's been fabulous for me. They listen. Some people might be examples of the veteran who once told me there was no way you're going to take me and my macho guys into quote unquote therapy. But when the art therapist explained what we were going to be doing, it just seemed a little easier. And the next thing he said to me, and said this publicly for us, we had a great testimony from this veteran who said, I chose not to commit suicide because of art therapy. Saved my life. Wow. Anybody can get art therapy. The other fun fact you might ask me about, Joanna, is do you have to be good at art? No. Art therapists love to say it's all about the process. It is not about the outcome. You do not need to be an artist or art inclined. Some people may find more naturally that that's an option for them because they do enjoy making art. Other people find that they didn't think they would ever enjoy making art and sure enough, becoming lifelong artists. Wow. So you don't have to be good for art. Art therapy is for everybody. Wow, Cynthia, you are introducing us to a profession that maybe a lot of my listeners don't know about. So before we get into what ADA is doing to serve its members, tell us about your journey. How did you become executive director of this organization, of this niche organization, it sounds like? Well, I sometimes think it was just some sort of divine intervention because when I look back, I think it's just the right mission and the right people and the right everything for me. And I, believe me, I didn't think so the first year I had. It was my first executive director job and my first association job. Oh, my God. Yes. The art therapists took a major chance on a pretty, uh, you know, green with a capital G executive. I had spent the first 20 years of my career with pretty much every major media company you can think of doing some sort of either sales or marketing or promotion, last with ABC radio networks. And then I just was being very well paid and frankly, bored out of my mind. And I had been spending so much time volunteering in the Washington, D.C. area. I thought the only time I'm actually feeling good about myself and my work is when I'm not at work. So how do I marry this? And I have a business mind. I realized we're in Washington, D.C. It's the nonprofit capital of the world. Yes. So I took a pay cut and I made a switch to a senior level marketing job at a national nonprofit that was a wonderful experience for five or six years. And, you know, at the time I was so happy and never worked harder in my life, but it was so much better. But at the time, a actual Real life CAE, the first I ever met was the president of the board. And he called me aside and he said, You know, 
you ought to consider pursuing a CAE because I think you're going to be an executive director someday. Ah, great advice. I didn't believe I'm like, who, me? I'm just the VP of marketing. I That took me a long time to get to, right? <laughs> right? And he said, no, I think you're going to be executive director sometime. And he also encouraged me to consider the switch, which would be from the charitable C3 side to the association space. And he made a very good argument for it. Big hero I'm grateful to is Bill Good, who's now retired. He was the CEO of the National Roofing Contractors Association for, I think, at least 30 years. Anyway, I didn't listen to Bill. I waited another three or four years. And then I went to another nonprofit and another senior level position. And it all started to become very, very clear based on the feedback I was getting from my staff members and my team members. So one day I took a week off. I went to CAE week to jumpstart my credits. I got a coach. I got a LinkedIn page. And I had no intention, no intention of becoming an executive director until I had passed the test and had a little time to get myself together. And sure enough, a recruiter called for the American Art Therapy Association. Wow. I'll tell you what, I joke with them, but because public awareness, especially 10 years ago, was much lower than it is today, I think they were just surprised that I was excited because I knew what art therapy was. Or I thought I did, because at the time I had a foster child at home who was getting therapy and doing art in that therapy. Ah. And actually, it was with a proper art therapist. But in hindsight, I didn't really know what I was, the whole picture that I would know today. So I always joke with them, like, did you hire me just because I, you know, walked in with a pretty notebook and I was excited about art therapy? And I don't know. I think at the time, we both probably weren't sure. The board was much less sophisticated at the time. And I sure as heck was pretty unsophisticated, but I didn't know it. So that's why I say a year later, two years later, I looked back and like, thank God we didn't know what we didn't know. Ah. The board that hired me was, you know, more of a traditional board that I'm, I'm proud to say has grown up. The people have changed many times and beautiful intentions on all of them, but have, we've worked very hard to increase our professionalism or governance. But the time was a board that just, they said they wanted a leader of the future, not a manager. They didn't really mean it. Really what they wanted was a new website, right? And and I had some idea, having been halfway, I hadn't passed the test yet. I hadn't even been halfway to my credits, but I figured how hard could it be? And, you know, I slipped on a few banana peels, but thanks to perseverance and more importantly, to the association community and some key mentors that immediately embraced me and kind of picked me up from the collar like you do with puppies. Yeah, yeah. So Cynthia, how long have you been ED of ADA? I've been executive director of ADA for nine years now. You know, when I think back to the story I just told you is starting as this green first-time association person, first-time ED, every two years I'm a different person. This has been the most fulfilling personal and professional growth experience of my life. Boy, that really says a lot about the organization and about you. To be fair, I think it says a lot about, yes, the association, but also the association community. I'm just, I just wish I had found associations much earlier in my career. So listeners, introduce your sons and daughters to association management as a profession. Cynthia, every single person I have on this podcast says, I fell into it. Let's get back to you. Something you said, you said that there was a focus on professionalizing the organization. So you've been there nine years 
And about six or seven years ago, you started an initiative to professionalize the organization. So what does that mean and why at that time? Where we have gone, we're super proud of as an association is one board president at a time taking the suggestion, the opportunity, and the leadership strength to openly embrace that we don't always know what we don't know. And how can we do this? My first year, a board member said, I don't know, I think the association hasn't had staff until recently and hadn't had an office in Washington, and now you're here. And there must be a way to run an association besides figuring it out by ourselves. Ah, like, oh, yes, I'm actually about to take a test for something called, yeah, <laughs> ah. you know, operated in a vacuum for 45 years. And you know what? The profession grew over 65 years of the profession that I think volunteers, art therapists did an amazing job of developing education standards, developing ethics, developing practice protocol, developing a community. But To grow from that, you also need a business model. You need appropriate approach to policies. You need advocacy. You need public awareness. You need data. We didn't have a whole lot of that. So from where I came from in 2014, 2015, when we were having conversations in board meetings about very tactical things, today, and I absolutely credit this with my amazing, I've had uh, four presidents, I think, that started this, that we're going to be that association. We are here for the seventh grader that hasn't even realized that in 12 years they're going to be an art therapist. That's why we're here as a board. We might do volunteer tasks because of small budget. We might ask the board to do a little more than we might in a larger budget, but we're here for that. We're here to make sure there's strategy. We make sure there's money and we're here to oversee and support the executive director so they can row in that same direction. So in that professionalism, came actual impact on each of those pillars that in whichever strategic plan of which year is usually have certain key things in them, but that's diversity, equity, inclusion, that's proper governance, which we now call really leadership. How are we mentoring the next generation of art therapists? How are we collecting data in a way that will help us? How do we engage members and constantly adjust how we engage members to what the current culture of membership needs us to be. Those are the kind of conversations that we're having. We're not talking anymore about, we all joke in association circles like, oh no, gosh, they want to change the color of the website. We're talking about important stuff. And I think the key moment of pivot for us in 2016, 2017, 2018, really started to teach the board enough about their financial oversight and health for them to realize that like many associations, we were absolutely dependent on only two streams, membership, one conference, and the gods of the investment market, which until frankly last year have always been very good to us, right? So there's strong reserves. Board was afraid to touch them. They didn't know what to do with them. And not enough staff. With two staff, I'm now six to seven staff, depending on the day (laughs) these days. But the big one was the board took the risk and the strategic decision to say, we're not going to be sustainable. This is not sustainable for that seventh grader that might be an art therapist someday. If we have one good year of conference and one bad year of conference. Right. And I know this is not uncommon. And when I say this among my peers, they're like, ah, every association has a problem. We need to get out of it. Sure. But I would argue that those of us with small budget really need to focus on that more than anyone else. Absolutely. Because you have two bad conferences in a row, you're out of business. 
Yes. And so what the board was willing to do, you know, I pled my case, which is let's invest. We're healthy enough to invest and let's invest more than we're going to earn for the next couple of years. Let's create a bell curve. We showed them a five-year sketch of what that could look like because you've got to build and diversify revenue. The one thing that was missing, aside from capacity of staff, was technology. We were, like a lot of small budgets, using, I call it 1950s technology, but I suppose it was 2005 technology. Prior boards wouldn't have dreamed of spending more than $10,000 on a database, quote unquote. And here I'm looking at what, frankly, little or unclean data I have. And it's quite obvious by 2018 that members having one, two, three, four, count them, five sign-ons was costing us business. More importantly, what we learned over time, it was costing us the opportunity to develop that's what's in it for me, membership value and programming. So we invested, we thankfully, with the help of Delcor, looked at some very, very good products. We wound up with Impexium, which for us was a fit, and the associated learning management system and community system and proposal system. One sign on. Yay. Yay. And we launched that two weeks into the shutdown of the pandemic. Ah. And coincidentally, three days before the opening of our annual early bird, it was a bit of a time. But (laughs) that pivot, I believe, kept us in business through the pandemic, and it allowed us to serve the members' needs during the pandemic in ways that we wouldn't have been able to dream of a year prior. And why is that? What did tech allow you to do during the pandemic that you didn't have the ability to do prior? Communications. Okay. Getting people what they need to know when they need to know it. The complete switch to virtual, which today is now we've expanded beyond the virtual conference to routine virtual communications and virtual learning as well as in person for the sake of inclusivity, another Herculean task of building a truly diverse and inclusive organization the way many associations now have realized we have to focus so much more on than we had neglected to before being able to just transparently provide information and resources to our members and allowing our members to literally get into our system so they could talk to each other Ah. or buy the program. I see. Okay. (laughs) Or do the presentation. It's been remarkable. And I keep learning more and more the longer I have what I call grown-up technology, the more we realize how important it is. (laughs) And by the way, early in the pandemic, ASA hosted, I think it was ASA might have been XYZ, hosted a panel of major, major sized organization CEOs who were all dealing with frontline issues at the worst time, the beginning of the pandemic. And I was surprised, and now I'm too smart to be surprised because it's my answer too. I was pleasantly surprised to hear at the end of these horrific challenges they're dealing with, the host asked all four of them, what is the number one most important thing? For your association to succeed through all of this and beyond. And each one of them said technology. Absolutely. Coming from Matrix, yes. <laughs> I know you're a fan. Well, I think technology either powered you or constrained you during the pandemic, right? If you didn't have a way to let your staff work from home because of tech constraints, you were constrained. You didn't have people working. If you didn't have the ability to know who your members were, communicate with them instantly, put on really good virtual events, keep track of all this stuff, then you were constrained. So yeah, absolutely. And we definitely saw it. And you know, we have a lot of clients whose members were on the front lines and we felt like, wow, their members are really at the center of the universe. So we have clients whose members are schools. 
We have clients in food retail. We have clients whose members are clinical labs. So they were at the front lines of making sure people got fed, making sure kids were educated, and making sure that the testing was happening. It was really pretty remarkable. Hey, let me ask you a question. So your website, you talked about DEI. Your website talks about how DEI is incorporated into the strategic plan. Why is this important? Why with art therapy? Well, DEI is important for every reason, but for art therapy, twofold, both our members who certainly have given us enough feedback over the years that we realized that we just weren't doing the job. Is the membership not diverse enough? Is that the issue? That is number one. Art therapy largely is a white female profession. Okay. At least my membership is. And the clients they serve are not. Art therapists serve every possible Uh, client, including you and me, but many, many, many marginalized groups. So it is critical for the future of the profession that we diversify who is in the profession so that clients can choose and understand and feel at home. And the other part is not just for our membership, but again, for those clients to be able to be an association that understands what our members need for their clients, right? Again, my golden-hearted members who went into a profession that's hard to get into to serve many, many marginalized groups. I have members who are working with people in prisons. I have members who are working with eating disorders, racial trauma, gun violence, LGBTQIA and transgender issues. So they have enough on their plate and we need to be able to give them the resources, treat them in a way, and also give them the resources to help other people and the education to help other people in a way that makes sense from a DEI perspective. Hmm. Our organization, out of hard times, often comes the best things, right? And I would say that the ADA got its wake-up call about DEI two years before the rest of the world decided to wake up because we had an internal controversy based on some external politics that were happening in the world that directly impacted our members and their clients. And, you know, it was a controversy for the ages. But out of that, I remember listening to member after member on all sides of the issues and thinking, you know, there's the issue in front of us. But really, I think what a lot of people can agree on here is I don't think over our 50-year history, we've done as good a job as we can do. Mm where we need. So the board really took that quite seriously. And it started with lots and lots of focus groups and lots of communications and lots of trainings. And our programming has changed our approach and just making sure that DEI is is a lens that is on everything we do. You mentioned governance too, as part of professionalizing the organization and as part of your journey. You recently made a change to your governance and you now allow students to vote. That is unusual and radical. So tell us about that. Well, I hope it's not too radical, but, you know, I felt very strongly that students should have the right to vote. And they didn't before. They didn't before. And when I had brought this up in earlier years in my time here, and it's interesting to see how people, you know, we're always changing and evolving. And first, there was more of a pushback that students don't know enough. Hmm. They haven't experienced the profession, so voting for their elected leaders. And a few years went by, and now and then I'd make the case to one or two leaders. And then we decided last year, my fabulous president, executive committee, and the board, like, let's talk to the members about it and put it on the bylaw. 
and a vast majority voted in. So that tells me how our organizational culture is changing. Nice. And now when I say, you know, when you say to me, a student doesn't know enough, it kind of bothers me now because I think, well, we women weren't given the right to vote for a long time because apparently we weren't smart enough to vote. So I don't like disenfranchising anybody, let alone people that are part of our membership. So yeah, effective now are graduate students because they're going to be our therapists and beyond our voting members of the organization. So yeah, that's exciting. We'll see the elevating their voice at the table and what becomes of that. Boy, how empowering for them, right? To feel like they've got an equal voice in this organization, in this profession that is welcoming them and giving them a voice. I think one of the things that helped, you know, and I, you know, this our individual members, beautiful people, constantly open and thinking and growing. And what the association also did in the last few years, as we made our DEI changes, we also realized the value of being a transparent organization, hmm. accountable organization. So, you know, we went from what I now call the dark ages, which by the way, I think is 20, maybe 18. <laughs> and it's changed so much, right? We went for the dark ages of having that once a year big annual meeting at the in-person annual conference, which means only the people that choose to or can afford to come to the big annual conference are usually the biggest voices can participate. We went from that to what is now six all-member meetings a year. Cynthia, before we go, you say that your members really like Purple, which makes me really happy. And Purple is part of your brand, and it's an important part of my brand. So you have a funny story about Purple and merchandise. At all of my conferences, I learned the hard way early on. We had a purple bag and a red bag, and almost fights started breaking out over that purple. So now when I sell merchandise, I've realized I'm always going to do better if I sell the color purple. (laughs) And it happens to be the matrix color. Yes. Power to the purple. Power to the purple. I love the color. And Cynthia, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for talking to us about art therapy and the importance of this work that your members are doing. And thank you for everything you're doing for your members. I hope you'll come back and talk to us about the continuing journey in the organization. So thank you. Well, we're doing a lot of exciting new things this year, so I would love to come back. And I just appreciate you doing this for the association community and beyond. It's just a great podcast. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye! Bye!